Hello there, this is Carol, and you're listening to the newest episode of Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of technology, business, and media in Asia. Today, I am joined by the co-host of Tech Buzz China, who is also one of the most trusted voices on China Tech, and my dear friend, Ray Ma. And we are going to talk in depth about Luckin Coffee. First of all, welcome back on the show, Ray. I know it hasn't been that long since you came on, but what have you been up to lately? How's the situation over at where you are in terms of you know COVID? How's everything? <laughs> well, it's really nice to be called one of the most trusted voices. So that's awesome. Thank you. I'm still in San Francisco Bay Area, and we are here in shelter in place. And yeah, not too much has changed since we last spoke about Billy Billy. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> We last talked at the beginning of February, almost three months ago, on the topic of Billy Billy, and I actually want to report back that I went through the infamous Billy Billy registration test after we talked, and got a pretty good score of I think it was like eighty six out of a <laughs> hundred. So I'm pretty proud of that, and now fully appreciate how difficult that test is, and believe that anyone who claims to be a contemporary Chinese expert, especially on you know culture and the Internet of Things, they need to pass that test. That is the new. That's the new standard. And listeners, if you don't know what we're talking about, go check out episode number three hundred and twenty-two on Analyze Asia. Okay, now back to our topic of luck in coffee. Before we start, I would like to put out the disclaimer that we are simply putting out information, and this information provided here by myself or our guest is not to encourage the buying or selling of any equities mentioned, and investing is strictly your own responsibility. So please do your homework and let's get started. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the founding story of Luckin Coffee. We've got you covered. You can listen to episode 279 that we did with Matthew Brennan on how the company was formed, who formed it, and did they really pose a threat to Starbucks? And then TechBuzz China also recently did a episode covering the recent scandal as well. But long story short, I would like to just give you a little bit of a synopsis. So Luckin Coffee started off with the on-demand delivery model. Did not have any large physical stores like Starbucks. Then it started scaling up by burning investment money, building physical stores, and these investors, according to CB Insights, came from a variety of sources, including venture capital like Joy Capital, asset management, private equity, investment banks, and even a sovereign wealth fund from Singapore. So today we are going to first start looking backwards a little bit to talk about what happened that led to Luckin Coffee's alleged fraud that was announced by the company. So, right, how did this alleged fraud of Luckin Coffee suddenly just pop into the public's attention and go crazy on Twitter, <laughs> as we've seen? So, how did the alleged fraud come to the public attention? I think there are two pieces, right? So, back in January, there was an anonymous report that was released, eighty-nine pages, that was publicly disclosed by Muddy Waters, which is a fund that generally is an activist short seller, and they basically said that Luck and Coffee was committing massive amounts of fraud. And then the market absorbed this information. Some other investors, including another noted short seller called Citronk Research, actually came out in defense of the company, but. Lo and behold, two months pass. 
The Hook and Coffee at the beginning of April filed a form with the SEC and basically disclosed that they had found that their own COO and a couple of his colleagues were committing fraud and had inflated revenues as well as expenses. So then they put out a press release basically announcing this and said that they had formed a independent special committee and were providing information related to the ongoing internal investigation. And that's when everyone discovered that like, okay, here the company is basically admitting that they had discovered something is wrong internally. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is specifically the alleged fraud about and how much of it has really been uncovered? So far, basically, the 6K that was released says that it's in a preliminary stage of internal investigation, but that they had already determined that the COO had basically fabricated transactions from the second quarter of 2019 to the fourth quarter of 2019. So that's three quarters, nine months, amounting to around $2.2 billion dollars. RMB. And then in order to do this, he had also inflated certain costs and expenses corresponding to that period. So basically, as an investor, you should completely disregard the company's financials for those three quarters. Since then, actually, the company has been asked by NASDAQ to provide certain information. And because they have not done so yet, they have actually halted trading of the stock. If you go online and try to trade luck in stock, the company has halted trading. And that will happen indefinitely until they answer NASDAQ. Wow. You mentioned this a little bit about who the company says was behind the alleged fraud. Can you tell us a little bit more about this individual or the group of people? Yeah, so it's not super clear right now who exactly is in this group, but the company in their release has basically said it is spearheaded by the COO, who is a gentleman by the name of Liu Jian. And he is a director of the company. He has apparently several other employees who were reporting to him that had engaged in this misconduct. And the COO and these employees who have been implicated have now been suspended, and the contracts that they had signed are now terminated. Liu Jian himself, there isn't too much information on him because his prior experience was with the chairman of the company, uh, Lu Zhengyao, who had founded a couple of other car sharing and car rental companies before. And so Liu Jian's prior experience, like the rest of the management team, actually was with Chairman Lu, Lu in these other companies. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that very soon after he graduated from university, he has been working with Lu or with other people that he still works with at Luckin Coffee. So they all have known each other for a really long time, which is why people find it hard to believe that no one else knew about it, of course, given how close their relationship seemed. So what is the impact given the announcement? And I know there, the, you know, the stock crash and then next day, the cus- all the customers rushed to claim their coffee coupons that led the system crashing on the next day. What are some of the other implications that have taken place since then? Yeah, sure. So, you know, like you mentioned, the company itself obviously has suffered a great loss in its market capitalization, right? It was previously valued at over $10 billion. At its height, it was close to $13 billion, And now it's basically barely $1 billion if we take its last traded price. So on the day of the announcement, it basically lost, you know, over 
75% of its value. What that has done is it's also really brought out a lot of concerns with the investment community on how reliable other Chinese ADRs are. So as we know, there's a couple dozen other Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges, and a few of them have been, I guess, like under attack, but also have been scrutinized by other short sellers. But basically, those companies, you know, other short sellers have been scrutinizing, have also taken a hit. And it just in general, people who had their own suspicions maybe about Chinese companies in particular not being, you know, the most honest, those securities have gone down. And you can look online for some of those names, but a few of them actually went down, you know, 30-40% in tandem with the Luckett news. Yeah, I, I did see also a lot of other type of reports flowing around immediately after the Luckett Coffee disclosure, the company announcement. But I don't think any of the reports I've seen are as extensive as the anonymous report for Luckett Coffee. Just in general, there are a couple of short sellers that have this as their main strategy, identifying fraud, identifying overvalued companies, or identifying some other sort of misconduct. Basically, after the Luckin News came out, uh, a lot of those reports got more attention, even if they didn't come out this year. So even uh, a few of those reports were recirculated effectively after, like, from last year. Gotcha. We all know that Luckin has somewhat of a strange story. They, you know, uh, went public within two years of founding. Can you help our listeners understand just a little bit more about the business model that they had that led them to go public in the U.S. so quickly? Yeah, basically, their story was that we're going to beat Starbucks. The easiest way to understand their story is that they had a couple trends. One was the fact that everything was becoming digitized and on-demand was this huge market opportunity. The second was that, you know, coffee is this relatively untapped market. It's one of the largest commodities on the planet, and yet consumption on a per capita basis is relatively low in China. So there was this potential to, you know, sell a lot more coffee to Chinese drinkers, especially relative to the rest of Asia. And so they combined these two concepts and said, we're going to be this digital first on-demand coffee delivery company. And by the way, because our management has this experience expanding a business very quickly, remember this management came over from a car rental and car sharing business. They were very good at operating offline assets and delivering them to people through a digital you know, interface that, oh, we were the right team to take advantage of this opportunity. So they combined on-demand coffee as well as the management's past expertise. And they were pretty successful, right? By the time they uh, filed for IPO, they had like over a thousand stores, I believe. Actually, you might want to check that. <laughs> but uh, by the time they went IPO, like you said, it was less than two years after founding, but they had expanded greatly all over China. And they would keep on comparing the, their footprint, their number of stores to Starbucks, which, as you know, has been wildly successful in China, and China is their second largest market. Yes, I do remember them constantly comparing themselves. So it seems like currently Starbucks has about 4,200 stores in China. And Luckin Coffee, at least in 2019, they had over 3,600 stores, so very close to Starbucks already. And it took obviously a really long time for Starbucks to actually build um, all of these stores. It's very uh, possible that Starbucks felt uh, threatened, all right, by 
by uh, Luckin Coffee and then, you know, opened up more stores. And then, of course, I know that the online delivery was something that they initiated after Luckin Coffee started touting that, oh, we, you know, deliver while Starbucks does not. Now, let's take a closer look at this anonymous report that we've been mentioning. Now, in the Tech Buzz Extra Buzz episode, you mentioned that the report was a very extensive 89 pages report that utilized 92 full-time and over 1,400 part-time staff on the ground to record over 11,000 hours of video, which is almost three years worth of store days, covering about 620 stores in 38 different cities in China. Wow. And it is basically this report that fanned the flames for Luck and Coffee to their present state. However, there's also a lot of confusion about who did the report. For example, some media has mistakenly attributed it to, you know, Muddy Waters. And so the first question that we have, what are some of the key facts behind this report? Yeah, so I think if you read the report, which I highly recommend if you are at all interested in investing in Chinese equities, you can see the extent to which they did really, really detailed work to back up their thesis. And the report is basically broken down into two parts, like many short seller reports are. It's composed of smoking gun evidence. So like really, really obvious fraud. And then also what they call red flags, which are, you know, softer indicators of something that could be wrong with the company. They had five smoking gun evidence, and then they had another uh, six red flags. So if you look at the smoking gun evidence, it goes from, you know, that basically they did diligence, uh, as you said earlier, recruiting staff on the ground to really record actual store traffic, looking at thousands of store receipts. Actually, I believe it was 25,000 customer receipts. They came up with a statistical analysis that was representative of, you know, all Luckin stores and traffic. They basically were able to prove that uh, Luckin was inflating the number of orders. They were also inflating the net selling price per item. They were also overstating its advertising expenses and they were overstating the revenue contribution from other products. So there was just a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things that they were lying about over there. And then if you look at their red flags, it was more like, like I said, red flags are generally um, things that alert you to, Hey, something possibly could be going wrong here, but it's not proof. And the red flags were basically luck and management. Their prior companies also had some issues. They had effectively cashed out on their stock holdings, so showing that they weren't confident in the company. And they had done this by loaning their shares to investment banks and exposing investors to the risk of margin calls. And yeah, there's basically a lot of uh, red flags that they found. Another couple of red flags they had found was, you know, Luckin had raised almost a billion dollars actually through a follow-on offering convertible bond to develop its unmanned retail strategy, which is basically, you know, self-vending uh, coffee machines. And this was not really a business strategy that made a lot of sense. And also they did mention that the CMO, the chief marketing officer, Yang Fei from Luckin, had actually been in prison before for illegal business operations. There's just like all these things that pointed to, you know, questionable management practices basically led them to uh, conduct this massive diligence process. And for those of you who haven't read the report, it has two interesting parts, just like the title suggests. One is about fraud. The other one is about the fundamentally broken business model. So what are some of the business model flaws cited in the report that support the claim that 
Rock and Coffee has a fundamentally broken business model. Yeah, so the report really lists five of them to be exact, but these are things.、Uh, actually, the business model flaws are things a lot of other people have pointed out, and you could probably get a good sense of these just from talking to experts in the space, which is supposedly how this anonymous investors were able to get these flaws. And so, some of the flaws is number one: Luckin wanted to target coffee demand, but actually, Chinese people already. Intake a lot of caffeine. It's just not in the form of coffee. It's in the form of tea. Basically, their demand calculations was already off. And then number two, looking customers are really price sensitive, and that's something that was actually obvious to a lot of people. Looking's claim to fame, actually, if you talk to a lot of Chinese customers, was that your first cup was free. And starting in Q4 of last year, they actually started offering free cups to existing customers as well. So this kind of very heavily subsidy-driven strategy is not very sustainable. Another business model flaw is that these are flawed unit economics. If you go to the report, they do a very good job of explaining why, with Fluckin's model of delivery costs, you know, storefront maintenance,、uh, advertising, etc., and their hev- heavily subsidized pricing strategy, basically the unit economics don't make sense, are negative from the get-go, and don't turn positive. Another business model flaw is that they wanted to expand, or they claimed that they were going to expand. Into non-coffee products, but actually, this team and this brand really has no competence in those other products. And in fact, other products like the ones that they eventually announced that they would go into, like milk tea, have very, very strong competitors. So, being you know, even if they were a coffee leader, as they claimed, they probably don't really have a chance、uh, expanding beyond that. And then finally, the other business model flaw was they ended up doing franchise for their milk tea. Business unit, and that is actually a very high compliance risk. So it wasn't even properly really set up.、Uh, so if you are an investor, you know you really shouldn't have relied on that business unit to contribute much to Luckin overall. Yeah, I actually didn't know that they even sold milk tea. And you know what? As an avid bubble tea drinker, milk tea drinker, I'm very particular about the brands that I purchase from and the taste, etc. So, oof, probably wouldn't have purchased from them, anyways. Yeah, I saw you post like the like huge bottle of like milk tea or something like. So this is what like five gallons of milk tea looks like, or something. <laughs> That's right. That, I didn't purchase it though, but this is available for purchase through this chain and milk tea store, and they sell five liters of milk tea, and it is housed in one of these like water cooler things, you know, the water dispenser. Yeah, it was huge and extremely heavy, but I doubt the taste、uh, of it. I usually go for Indian Indian. <laughs> Yes. Back to Luckin. Let's zero in on one key red flag from the fraud section. It says that the number of items per store per day was inflated by 69% in Q3 of 2019 and 88% in Q4 of 2019, and that's supported by over 11,000 hours of store traffic video. Can you explain how the report presents its investigation and uses the numbers to get to this conclusion? Yeah, so you know, as we mentioned earlier, this took a lot of manpower, so like over a thousand part-time staff on the ground, and what they did was they recorded the store from opening till close, and if any. Time the st- the video had more than ten minutes missing, then the entire video would be thrown out. 
So actually half the video they recorded did not meet this criteria, which is why they're so confident in the video that they actually examined. And so the video would be turned in and then someone else would basically record, write down the number of orders and the, the foot traffic that was coming in. Now, this was really important because by the end of 2019, actually delivery was only a small portion, uh, only like over a little over 10% of Luckin's orders. So being able to, you know, sit there and really count who was coming to the store to pick up was really important. The anonymous report that what they did was also because Luckin had so many stores, but you know, the stores were in all sorts of different places, you know, malls, office buildings, etc., that they actually picked a representative sample, not only in terms of geographic dispersion, but in terms of what types of stores these were. So once the data came back, then you, you they could be very statistically confident that the data they collected was could be extrapolated to, you know, the the many thousands of stores Luckin had, even though they looked at, you know, just over 600 stores, which, by the way, is still a lot. It's not, you know, it's well over 10% of the total number of stores. That's right. In a lot of different cities as well. So it's not like just in a few of the more well-known cities like Beijing or Shanghai or something like that. And the anonymous report also took a very strong look at the unit economics of Luckin Coffee, and that is cited as their business flaw number three on page 78. So what are some of the key arguments from the report that establishes the company is not able to be profitable? Anonymous basically said there are three main business models that Luckin could follow. These three business models were each proven to work. The three were, you know, going for Starbucks, like the third place feel where you have a sit down and you can charge premium for a nice environment. Or you can go to a convenience store model where there's a lot of foot traffic and you can sell cheap coffee, but at the same time, you're selling lots of other things as well. So, you know, multi-skew or many thousands of SKUs uh, in, in your space. Uh, or you can go with the milk tea shop. So a small footprint, not like one of the fancy ones, but a small footprint, just a few products, but the market is much substantially bigger, right? Remember earlier we said a lot of Chinese people drink tea and you know you yourself, you're a big milk tea person, but the number of people who drink coffee is still relatively low. So for Luckin to work, they had to really do sort of one of these three. But instead, basically their model, which was small footprint, you know, but few SKUs and also focusing on a small market was just didn't fit any of these models. And then what happened was if you look at the margins for each of these three models and try to apply them to Luckin's model, basically Anonymous came up with an estimate that actually Luckin real business metric was probably negative 33% operating margin after applying the delivery subsidy. So they basically said, hey, you know, on a unit economics basis, Luckin's model is fundamentally broken and doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking at the report right now, and I know 89 pages sounds like a really, really long report that you don't want to read, but actually is very easily digestible because it gives you, you know, the executive summary and also a summary of the different parts that very clearly lists out the smoking gun evidence, which there are five, which you mentioned earlier, and the red flags, there are six of them. And then it also talks about the five business model flaws, which we uh, mostly covered already. And it's interesting how it also lists all the stores that they've visited. 
their location, the city, and what type of building it is in. And then also there are so many interesting photos, you know, either of um, delivery personnel inside the stores, of course, with their, you know, face covered, you know, there are WeChat um, screenshots, there are photos of receipts, and uh, with everything very clearly laid out for you. So with such an elaborate report, of course, it took a lot of effort. And honestly, this entire episode can probably be turned into like a billions, you know, TV series. Um, so the million dollar question is who is behind this report and what is their motivation behind it? Okay, I mean, we can probably guess, you know, part of the motivation or at least one key motivation or fundamental motivation is the money, you know, but yeah, who do you think is behind the report and why do they do this? Well, you know, again, there are rumors, which we wrote in our newsletter about how it was another fund in Hong Kong that might have commissioned the report. But, you know, generally, when someone embarks on this kind of strategy to try to expose fraud in a company, their motive, like you said, is financial, right? So they're a short seller, they have shorted the stock, and they now need to convince the market that there's fraud here. So to make their money. All, of course, this kind of elaborate report took a lot of money. It probably didn't take as much money as it would have if you tried to employ 1,400 people in the U.S., but still, it was non-trivial for this to get done. And the reason why they did this is, I mean, I can guess like a couple of reasons. So number one, if it was Muddy Waters that did it, Muddy Waters has a long-standing reputation for putting out really good research and being very accurate in their short selling. So the anonymous investor who did this probably is not Muddy Waters, right? We already know this because uh, Muddy Waters was one of actually several investors who got this report. Citroen Research also got this report. So whoever did this was so complete and elaborate because number one, they probably saw the opportunity, right? The two basically have the story be so airtight that after you read it, you could not help but come to the conclusion that this was a fraud and, and therefore agree with their position and, you know, have the stock tank. And number two is, uh, they probably had to do this because, like I said, they're not one of the well-known short sellers. So they couldn't come out and, you know, uh, rely on their own reputation for this report to happen. So that's why they had to do so much work. Now, who is really now benefiting from the entire Luck and Coffee debacle? Obviously, the people who shorted the stock would have de definitely benefited financially, but also probably Starbucks, right? given that 30% of their revenues were already coming from China. But I, I would say in general, the winners are fewer in number than the number of losers we have here. That's right. I think a lot of people were frantically trying to understand more about Luckin after the news broke out. And unfortunately, a lot of these extensive reports, for example, like the reports by Ran Caixin that you mentioned in your um, episode, were all in Chinese. And a lot of the investors, majority of the investors, were not Chinese because this is a stock listed in the U.S. So information asymmetry, uh, unfortunately, has uh, costed a lot of people a lot of money. And one interesting consequence, I think, of this entire Luck and Coffee episode is the quality of these type of investigative reporting for corporate fraud in China. You know, the anonymous report took a lot of effort, like we mentioned, to construct, and they had so many people going undercover trying to figure out some of the actual numbers. I know you talked also about how these so-called interns, whomever commissioned the report, paid for them to sit or stand in inside the stores for 
for an entire day. And they were even instructed or trained on how to respond to questions if they were asked what they were doing here, etc. It seemed like a lot of work. And so we noticed that this type of investigation is getting better, it seems like, for each scandal that pops up in the market. Do you think we'll be seeing more of this type of extensive reports and these type of exposes in the future? I'm not sure about that, but what I can give is some background, right? So in general, number one is we've seen, especially if you want to produce a report of this caliber it costs a lot of money so you better be pretty sure of your thesis before you start sinking money in and collecting evidence number two it's even when some of these reports go out like you could get pushback from other investors right like in in Luckin's case um, Citron which is a notable short seller uh, actually pushed back against this report so and and the stock actually didn't drop that much maybe you don't get the result you want even after you've spent all this energy and money. And number three is just like, this is a very risky move. In general, there aren't too many of these activist short hedge funds because you have legal liability. What if you're wrong? Actually, even when you're right, you could still get sued. So so basically, if you look online, there's a lot of legal liability for this kind of strategy. And so it's it's just generally um, very dangerous. That being said, short activism as a whole, not just focused on Chinese ADRs, has been rising in the past 10 years. And there is evidence that even when the short sellers are wrong, so even when the report has been proven to be not credible. The stock prices tend to stay depressed. I would say this is one of the reasons I, I did want to bring it up, which is that, you know, why has this seller, for example, rena- remained anonymous even when they have been, I think, at least so far, right, based on what Luckin has disclosed, that they have been right. The reason is because this is just a very unfriendly move, right? So you don't want to be known. I mean, unless you're Muddy Waters and that is your main strategy, you you sort of don't want to be known as this very unfriendly investor uh, because, yeah, like whoever gets attacked, the companies, their stock prices do tend to stay depressed. However, it is true that a lot of these short sellers um, consider themselves to be their role as market watchdogs. So I think in China, you know, because Luckin is a special case, it's US listed. So you didn't see too much of this uh, going on. But hopefully, maybe in the future, what this inspires people to do is to be taking a more active role in making sure that corporates are, or corporations, are doing the right thing so that there is at least this fear of being found out if they are being sketchy. Yeah, because really looking at some of these smoking gun evidence or the red flags or the business model flaws that we talked about, a lot of it seems quite intuitive and even obvious, right? For someone, you know, what were your thoughts when you first, you know, read um, this report and saw some of the evidence that were being listed? Yeah, so I think the evidence is separate from the business model flaws, right? Like, so again, the business model flaws and and then even some of the red flags, they were things that a lot of people you could pretty easily find without going and actually, you know, hiring many people, hiring thousands of interns to go record video. So it just depends on how much you believe the company was really inflating its numbers. A lot of people saw that this was a fundamentally broken business and didn't invest in it a lot. But that's, to me, that's very different from saying this is a fraudulent company that had 
you know, booked fake revenues. And for me, when looking at the report, I think that my initial reaction was like, yeah, I, I agree with the business model and red flags, but wow, seeing the amount of evidence that they collected, the smoking gun evidence, that was really impressive. But again, I think for me, if I did, if I were just a normal investor and I didn't know, you know, who this came from, I probably would not necessarily have acted on it, right? Because yeah, sure, you know, you claim to have 25,000 receipts, but how do I know that? So it helped a lot that it was that Muddy Waters who has a, you know, decade-long reputation for being right and also being very diligent about these things because that is their main strategy for them to come out and stand behind the report then that made it much more credible to me because there's no way for me to go and you know go through i don't know 25,000 receipts right and of course this has already negatively impacted a lot of the chinese companies that are listed in the u.s do you think there are any things that these companies can do actively in order to maybe um, dispel some of the negative sentiments that um, american investors now have about these chinese companies that's a really good question. So I think that basically there are things that a Chinese company can do, right? So number one, if you're being challenged on certain metrics or certain numbers, instead of saying, like basically becoming more transparent, right? There are, for example, certain Chinese companies that have been challenged by American investors on certain metrics. If, for example, that was something you could explain, and it should be something you can explain because, you know, related to the operations for a company, then, you know, I think being more transparent about that is absolutely more important. However, I have seen some Chinese companies take instead the route of like, oh, American customers or American investors don't understand. So we're not even going to bother explaining. Of course, that just makes it seem like you're guilty, right? So being more transparent, it's always going to be more helpful. Sometimes being Transparent takes a lot of work because, you know, things in China work differently than here. Then, you know, but I'm sorry, that's your job, right? To be accountable to your shareholders. I think that is a mentality that Chinese companies would do well to adopt. That's right. I've seen a similar type of a rhetoric, but yeah, that's not helpful to their cause at all. Like why list your company in the US if you don't believe that American investors can understand your business and see the value in your business? That just doesn't make sense to me. And, and out of this episode, do you have any advice or suggestions or cautions or what do you think the American investors or investors in the U.S. have learned from this episode? So one thing I highlighted in our podcast, which was, you know, you mentioned it briefly, which was information asymmetry. You know, I don't think it was super hard to find if you just bothered a, a little bit. But basically, I think there was this simplification of the like a narrative to basically dumb it down and make it, you know, China's challenger to Starbucks. But actually, it was pretty easy. You didn't really have to even read Chinese. There are just plenty of articles explaining why that was not the case. So I think, you know, instead of just doing a little bit more research, if you are the average retail investor, if you were, you know, more of an institutional investor, and you made a, you had a thesis bet that was based on some other information, 
information, as long as it was not because you thought it was Starbucks, that I think, you know, people make mistakes and people, you know, have whatever. People have the wrong thesis about consumer behavior all the time. So it's not that big of a deal to me. I think that the most important thing is, I guess what I would say is, if you're an investor, look back at why you invested in Luggin. And if the reason was because you thought it was trying to challenge your Starbucks, then I would really question, you know, how are you getting your information? If it was some other thesis that was much more accurate and you, for example, just like you, you truly believed Luckin had the right unit economics and you just didn't have the expert feedback about why it didn't actually, then maybe try to understand how you could advance your knowledge in that sector before you make more investments. But I think there were actually a lot of really good information in English that written by Chinese media, written by uh, people who are more familiar with Asia that you could have probably found. But I guess I do want to add that, the, that there definitely was a difference in how I saw Luckin being portrayed in Western media on a typically on a headline or like, you know, sort of, sort of short article basis versus how it would be talked about in Asian media, actually, that doesn't just include uh, Chinese. That is something that was my next question, actually. I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on, do you think the English language media reporting on Luck and Coffee for the American investment audience did a good job in telling their story? And do you think they are uh, partly to blame for a lot of people having a maybe misguided view about Luck and Coffee? Yes and no. So the reason why I say yes and no is because, yes, like I did see many articles, especially when I was putting together my podcast and just trying to understand how it was being characterized in mainstream media. And yes, there was it was kind of mischaracterized. However, at the same time, like I'm saying, there was still plenty of other information that was still very accessible, right? Free, open, and in English that you could also look at. And also, if you're an investor, if you're going to put a serious amount of cash into this company, then I do think it is up to you to, you know, do more research versus trying to just base like your trade off of like a Yahoo Finance headline or something. So in many ways, I think there was this sort of inaccurate perception that was propped up by all these headlines that were basically trying to make a shortcut, right? Trying trying to make this company intelligible to American investors because no, you know, American analog really exists. But at the same time, I'm not sure I have like a ton of sympathy for people who put, you know, serious money into the company without doing more research. So I do think that the if you put in like a little bit of play money, sure, and you didn't read it very carefully, knowing that you didn't understand the company as well as you could have, then that's excusable. But I think as investors should be a lot more careful. And there is just, there is too much good English media, including this podcast, including some of the other, you know, guests who have come on this show to, you know, discuss this company or other companies to, to ignore, basically. I agree with you there. And I think that is all the questions that we have on Luckin for today. But before I let you go, I would like to ask, is there a book, a movie, uh, even a podcast or article, etc., that you would like to recommend to our listeners? I'll recommend an article. I recently had the luck of inviting Dan Grover, who is a star PM who used to work at WeChat and now is at one of the Fang companies in the US. He talked about how Chinese 
internet apps had coped with COVID-19 and how the responses were and how actually it's very different from what we see here in the U.S. So I recommend that article. It's on dangrover.com. Oh, that sounds like a very interesting article to read. And I actually also made this very experimental video showcasing how like a, a regular millennial living in China would have coped with the self-quarantine period during uh, COVID-19, during the peak time of COVID-19. And it showcases the plethora of apps that I ran through during the day. And it's a really interesting watch if you haven't seen that. And where can our audience find you, Ray, if they would like to hear more about what your takes are on China Tech? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at R-U-I-M-A. It's just my full name or uh, everything I do around China Tech is up at techbuzzchina.com. And if you like to find us, you can also find Analyze Asia on Twitter. That is Analyze with an S. And of course, you can find more of our episodes on any podcasting platform by just typing in or searching for our name. And that is the end of our episode on Luck and Coffee. Thank you so much, Ray, for coming on the show again. And it's always a pleasure. And I'm sure we're going to invite you back sometime in the future very soon. Thank you. Okay, awesome.